Praise the Lord. Amen. It is good to see everyone here tonight. I understand it's a Wednesday. I understand people are various stages of weary and tired. I get that. Thank you for making the effort, the sacrifice for being here tonight. Amen. I encourage everyone uh, to make every effort to be in church whenever the doors are open. And I understand that that's not always easy. It's definitely not always convenient. Uh, I know what sacrifices sometimes are made to be here. I do understand that. I have worked second and third shift jobs. I've worked doubles and then had to be in church. I've... uh, I know what that's like, dragging in. But thank you. Thank you for being here tonight. Amen. Uh, Do we have any announcements? There's going to be church on Sunday. (laughs) Amen. There's our announcements. (laughs) Let's all stand. There are still people under the weather. Uh, Sister Bell texted me before service. She's still uh, no energy. Uh, her, her eyes are really tearing up a lot, so they're getting really sore and chafed. Uh, just pray for her. Pray for a healing. Uh, Brother and Sister McGinnis, uh, they thought they might be here tonight, but it just didn't happen. Uh, hopefully Sunday we'll see them. But continue to pray for them as well. Amen. Pray for our service tonight, that God's will would be accomplished here in our midst. Lord Jesus, you are an awesome God. You're a mighty King. We heap glory and honor unto you because you are worthy. We turn to you, Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, because it is you that has all wisdom, all knowledge, all understanding. You have the complete picture. And so we turn to you, thou most high God, for direction, for counsel, for leading and for guiding. Hallelujah, Jesus. We pray for these that are still ill. I pray for Brother and Sister McGinnis. I pray for Sister Bell. All of those within the sound of my voice, all of those joining us online, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that a perfect and a complete healing would wash over them. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. You are our great physician. It is you that created us. It is you that can and will heal us. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness to us. I pray for this service tonight, that your perfect will would be accomplished, that all of your heart would be manifest here tonight. Help us to understand once more. Help us to be reminded again tonight the surety of the Word of God, the verity of the truth that you have revealed to us through your Holy Scriptures. Above all else, Lord, that your name would be glorified here in our midst tonight. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. God bless you. Thank you, sir, for standing. Thank you for entertaining God's presence. You can be seated. Proverbs 1 and 7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. It is important for us as Christians to understand the importance of the Word of God. It is important for us to understand how powerful, how potent it is, how relevant it is to everyday life. Not just the, the, the overwhelming situations, not just 
the, the, the times in our lives where things are completely falling apart, although it's certainly relevant there. But it's relevant on the mountaintop experience. It's relevant in the day-to-day activities of life. It is altogether and completely relevant to our situations, our lives today. And it doesn't matter what culture we come from. It doesn't matter what time period we're a part of. It doesn't matter the color of our skin, male, female, child, adult. It just doesn't matter who we are, where we come from, our experiences or lack thereof. The Word of God is for us. It is for us. But we've got to believe it. We've got to trust in it. If we can't do that, then it is irrelevant to us. In, in uh, Psalms, there is uh, an interesting verse. Psalm 119, verses 127 and 128. I didn't give these to the sound booth. It says, Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. Now when you look at a passage of Scripture like that, our tender sensibilities get a little chafed. They get a little rubbed. Because it seems very dogmatic. Basically, if I can translate what uh, the psalmist is saying here, whatever God says is right, and I hate everything else that comes against that. That's a very cut and dried, very black and white, very, uh, some might say today, bigoted, closed-minded kind of a statement. Not a lot of room in there for anything else but God. And that is exactly the attitude that we need to take today. I know out there they're preaching tolerance, except for you guys. They're preaching acceptance, except for Christianity. But anything and everything else goes. It just doesn't matter as long as it's not this. So when someone steps out and says, well, I think everybody else is wrong and God is right. That offends people today. And it is going to continue to offend people. My problem, though, I expect that out there. They're in Egypt. They're going to do what Egyptians do. Okay? The atheist, the agnostic, of course they're going to respond that way. I expect that. But when I get a Christian that responds like that, when I get someone who professes a faith in Jesus Christ, that responds that, well, you can't speak like that. You can't be so dogmatic. No, I have a problem. That ought not so to be. Not here. Not in the people of God. We ought to hate error. Jesus Christ hates error. As Christians, as the people of God, we also ought to despise it. We ought to hate it. It's not good to be close enough. It's not okay to have just about all the truth. That's not enough. This really is all or nothing. You're saved or you're not. 
And we look at people out in the world, and they're good people. They do a lot of good things. My neighbor, he's a good person. He gave us a discount on a, on a rental at Ace Hardware. He's a good. He's good people. He did me good. But if he hasn't experienced the new birth, he's going to hell. It doesn't matter what else I believe or don't believe. It doesn't matter what I think. I got an opinion just like every other person does. But it doesn't matter what my opinion is. No one's going to be judged on my opinion. So it doesn't matter. No one's going to be judged on your opinion. So that doesn't matter. We're going to be judged on this book. What thus saith the Lord. That's what we're going to be judged by. And you might like that. You might not like that. Again, it's irrelevant. You're going to be judged by it whether you accept the fact or not. Whether you believe it or not. Whether you like it or not. We're going to be judged by this book. And so we have got to accept the fact that there is truth and there is error. And we need to love the one and hate the other. <clears throat> okay. Our sermon proper tonight. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 26, I'm not going to read it all. It's a very, very engaging passage of Scripture. Some genealogies. Everybody loves genealogies. But basically, it covers the time period between Noah and Abram. It's not a long period of time in the grand scheme of things. But we get, what, 16 chapters or 16 verses to cover this entire time period. We're going to be talking about this time period tonight for this reason. There is a lot of teaching going around, and I wouldn't really care so much about the other denominations, but I do care about it when our ministers are teaching something that's wrong. I've heard it come from our pulpits. It doesn't really matter what you believe about creation or evolution as long as you experience the new birth. Is that true? That is not true. If you can't accept Genesis 1-1, you're going to have a problem with the entire rest of the book. If you can't accept that God created everything out of nothing, that's important. He didn't come in after the fact, found some material laying around, and decided, well, no one's here. I'm going to claim it. That's way different than God speaking everything into existence by himself. Now it's God's. Now it belongs to him. Everything is his. And that's very important for us to understand. The rest of the book depends on knowing that. If we can't accept that fact, we've got a problem. 
we're going to have serious doctrinal problems later on. Did God use evolution to create everything? It's called theistic evolution. Well, God probably just used evolution. Well, now we got a serious problem because now death comes before sin. And the Bible teaches the exact opposite. That death is here in, in this existence, in this reality, because of Adam's sin. If that's not the case, I don't have time to get into it tonight, but our salvation is null and void. The sacrifice on Calvary is completely worthless, if that's true. But it's not true. It's not true. And when Christians and when ministers stand up here and, and tell me that this doesn't matter, I have a serious problem with that. That is error. And I hate error. I don't care what form it comes in. I don't care which mouth it comes out of. When it comes out of my mouth, I'm going to despise it just as much if someone points it out to me. I promise you. I can't stand it. Because I know where it leads. It leads people away from salvation. Error leads people away from Jesus Christ. That's why it exists. Error doesn't come from God. It comes from the enemy. You're going to hear a lot in school, in colleges, on YouTube, on the news, the popular media, that we evolved from an ape. And you're going to hear about all kinds of evidences. I'm going to talk about some things tonight that you probably have never heard before. But it's all well documented and easy to find if you just do a little digging. Okay, two points about ancient peoples that we need to clarify tonight so that we can understand truth. One, just about everyone believes that the earlier back we go, the less sophisticated and the less technologically advanced civilizations were. Okay, that is not true. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And we'll go more into detail on that, but they started out very sophisticated and very technologically advanced. The earliest periods of every civilization we dig up are the most advanced. And they kind of get worse and worse as time goes on. If you look at the pyramids of Egypt, the oldest pyramids are the best pyramids. They're the most sophisticated. They're the most engineered. As time goes on, they got worse and worse. Eventually, they just stopped. The other point is most people believe that pagan cultures had no concept of the biblical God at all. They believe that pagan cultures came to an understanding of the God of the Bible only after being evangelized by Christian missionaries. Most also believe that pagan cultures can have no higher concept of divinity than an idol because to come to a knowledge of the one true God requires the direct revelation of his word. Is that true? That is false. That is simply not true. From the earliest times, ancient peoples had a very clear and remarkably complete understanding of who the one true God is. Over time, of course, that understanding becomes corrupted. 
or cast aside in favor of other belief systems, but not altogether forgotten. Romans 1, 18-20 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath sowed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I'm going to read that again in the English Standard Version. It says it this way, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God hath sown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, everybody has this understanding. They choose to suppress it in unrighteousness, but in their heart of hearts they know. Everybody knows. Okay, the time of Noah and the flood was a time that simply has no precedence, either before it or after. It's interesting that with only a few exceptions, every culture in the world, both ancient and modern, have some account of Noah and the flood. There are differences, of course, there are corruptions, but it's remarkable the similarities between the accounts. Native global flood stories are documented as history or legend in almost every region on earth. Old world missionaries reported their amazement at finding remote tribes already possessing legends with tremendous similarities to the Bible's account of the worldwide flood. It's estimated that altogether there are over 500 flood legends worldwide. Ancient civilizations such as China, Babylonia, Wales, Russia, India, America, Hawaii, Scandinavia, Sumatra, Peru, Polynesia, etc., all have their own versions of a giant worldwide flood. If we look at the Babylonian account, we'll compare it with the Bible real quickly. That was the best caveman I could find. Yes. Take the seed of all creatures aboard the ship. This is from the Babylonian account. Genesis 6.19 says, Of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring. The Babylonian account continues, I boarded the ship and closed the door. Genesis 7.1 says, come into the ark. 7.16, the Lord shut him in. The Babylonian, I sent out a dove. The dove went, then came back. No resting place appeared for it, so it returned. Genesis 8.8 says, he sent out a dove, but the dove found no resting place, and she returned. The Babylonian account Then I sent out a raven. It was the waters receding. It ate. It flew about to and fro. It did not return. Genesis 8, 7 says, He sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. The Babylonian account says, I made a libation on the peak of the mountain. Genesis 8, 20 says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord on Mount Ararat and offered burnt offerings. Please keep in mind the Epic of Gilgamesh, where this account comes from, was written between 2750 B.C. and 2500 B.C., while according to Jewish scholars, Moses was born in 1393 B.C. So that makes this account about 1100 years older than the written account of the Genesis Flood. 
So it wasn't copied, was it? No, it wasn't. Due to the, the uniquely destructive nature of the global flood, it's no wonder we still have record of it today. According to Yoldani, in the proceedings of the 1992 Twin Cities Creation Conference, we have this account of the global flood. Now, understand, these creation scientists, they are uh, specialists in their field. Uh, geologists have, uh, and uh, climatologists have gotten together and they have come up with Probably a best-case scenario of what probably could have happened during the flood account. Obviously, no one was there to see it. So this is just a best guess, but it's still fascinating. A worldwide cataclysmic event which had caused the earth to crack open, causing worldwide earthquakes as a result of the newly formed fault systems and resulting in downthrusts and upthrusts, creating mountains out of basement igneous rocks and volcanic eruptions around the world each from 5 to 50 times greater than the largest eruption in known history. The atmosphere was upset by geysers of steam, hot water, powdered rock, and gases causing torrential rains, burying man's artifacts in the bottoms of valleys and under the oceans on the continental shelves. The oceans raced inland to meet fresh water from the collapsing atmospheric shield and mineralized hot volcanic water from the Earth's crust causing limestone to form. Worldwide fires broke out, creating a worldwide charcoal layer. It goes on more like that. So this time period between Noah and Abram, if you look at the genealogies, it's 527 years. But who's counting? Although the Bible only dedicates two chapters to this fascinating period of history, there was a lot of activity taking place, as we're going to see. Okay, the devastation from the flood was complete. The knowledge base, however, was not. Noah and his families came through the flood with all the knowledge they had prior. Whatever they had, whatever technological advancements they were familiar with, whatever engineering feats they were able to do, they brought that over with them. What they didn't bring over with them was the infrastructure, the tools necessary to do that. If you think of one of us being thrust back to ancient Greece or before that. Let's say I'm a computer engineer. I'm not, but let's say I am. And I build motherboards for a living. That's what I do. And I know how to do that. I know how to use the machines. I know what needs to go where. That's what I do. I go back 3,000 years. I still know how to do that. But I can't do that anymore, can I? Why? And they certainly don't have motherboards. They don't have any of the tools I need to make motherboards. They probably don't have the, the materials I need to make motherboards. So what do I, if I want to make a motherboard, what do I have to do? If I'm, an en, if I'm a car engineer and I want to make a car, what do I have to do? I have to go all the way back to the beginning. I have to find a way to smelt iron. I have to find a way to uh, create steel. I need to find some rubber or a substitute. I have to create all of these things. I have to build up the tools, the infrastructure from scratch. 
And that's exactly what Noah and his family had to accomplish. They knew how to do everything that they could do. By all accounts, the antediluvian period was highly advanced. Very highly technologically advanced. Morally bankrupt, but highly advanced. And so they came through with this knowledge. But no way to implement it. So they were very far from ignorant savages. But they just had to make do with what they had at the time. Their environment limited the amount of knowledge they were able to bring to bear in any given situation. Okay, so who were the old ones? Times of the old ones. Many civilizations believe and teach that it was the old ones, using one term or another for that, being of great wisdom and stature that taught them how to hunt and fish, how to craft musical instruments, how to read the stars, how to plant according to seasons, etc. (coughs) Well, of course, these are Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These are the old ones. We read about this, or at least the most I come across these references is in Native American uh, writings or culture. The old ones they speak of. And uh, they're always referred to as as beings of, of great stature, highly advanced, very wise, teachers. That's Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, for many generations, Noah's descendants lived on the high plateaus extending mainly southward from the mountains of Ararat. This included the Zagros foothills stretching to the east of the Great Fertile Crescent. At the same time, however, other descendants of Noah followed other paths. As the Great Ice Pack quickly grew to the north in Europe, Asia, and North America, hunters, both full-time and seasonal, began to follow the herds of great mammals. Okay, others, having no fear of the sea, began to explore the world. This idea that ancient people thought the earth was flat and that they were going to fall off the edge of the earth if they ventured too far out to sea is absolutely patently false. It's ridiculous. There is no record of that anywhere. It just doesn't exist. They knew the world was round. The ancient Greeks proved it, that the world was round. There's more evidence to demonstrate that. Each of these very different groups of post-flood people, which we have just described, all living during the same time period, left important artifacts, which today fill hundreds of museums all over the world. Okay, the great replenishing. After Noah and his family disembarked the ark, God gave them the command to multiply and replenish the earth. And they did. And conditions in the earth at this time were perfect for that. Absolutely perfect. Probably as perfect as they, as they have ever been since the fall. Every, okay, um, there's a Greek author called Hesiod. He writes this about this time period. And I quote, Every good thing was theirs. The barley-giving earth asked for no toil to bring forth a rich and plentiful harvest. They knew no constraint and lived in peace and abundance as lords of their lands, rich in flocks. They lived in unwalled towns since they had nothing to fear. No work was needed for the earth to bring forth a rich harvest. Birds and beasts multiplied to flocks and herds. The grass and trees grew luxuriant. They had found a beautiful land full of pleasures. They were foods of every kind. 
This was an idyllic period of time. And it lasted for about 100 to 150 years. Then everything changed. The Ice Age. There were not multiple Ice Ages, but there was an Ice Age. Now, during this idyllic period, we need to realize how quickly human beings can multiply. It's a concept called geometric progression. If you've ever heard of this, this uh, question, would you rather have a million dollars or a penny doubled every day for 30 days? Yeah, you all know that. It doesn't sound right. The million dollars sounds like it would be way more, but it's not. In fact, the first 15 days, you only end up with a few bucks. It doesn't happen very quickly initially, but it ramps up very fast. And it very quickly surpasses the million dollars. So, when we think of eight people, four families, in this period of time, conservative estimates, roughly 134 million people by the 12th generation, over 2 billion in the 14th. Now, that's not including uh, wars, famines, anything like that. That's just raw progression. Okay. As we said, this comes to a rather abrupt end with the advent of the Ice Age. Now, without getting too deep into it, uh, the Ice Age, the events that transpired during and right after the flood, caused an Ice Age to transpire about 100 to 150 years after the flood. The rampant volcanism combined with the ash and other debris blown into the atmosphere had two effects. It caused the oceans to get really warm. It caused the interior to get really cold. Warm oceans cause a large amount of rainfall, which isn't that bad for warm climates, but when it gets to the cold interior, it creates snow and ice. There's quite a bit more to it than that, but that's the overall gist. Okay. The ice packs locked up a great big amount of water. Uh, we see the opposite of that, or the, the fear of the opposite of that today. Uh, but it does. It holds a lot of water. And if you look at Google Earth, it's a fascinating program. But the, the, the light blue areas around the shores, all of that would have been land during this ice age because all the water was trapped in ice. This was thought to have lasted roughly 500 years in the northern regions, then abated as the oceans cooled, the interiors warmed into the current state of affairs that we enjoy today. Now, a fun fact, the earth has a slight wobble to it leading some scientists to believe that the Earth was hit by a large object at some point into its present position today. <clears throat> some people think that's why we have the 23.5 degree tilt that we have today, which causes seasons, which incidentally doesn't appear in Scripture until right after the flood. Maybe some event during the flood. Again, fun to speculate. In any case... Uh, moving on. Cavemen. Everyone's favorite topic. I love cavemen. Cavemen are so stupid. The idea of cavemen is stupid. Cavemen are very intelligent, actually. <coughs> Without getting too scientific... Oh, I'm sorry. That's the Ice Age. Uh, 1992. On the southern edge of the Alps in Italy, a body was discovered frozen in ice. He was quickly dubbed the Stone Age Iceman. 
and was carbon dated to around 5300 B.C. I'm not going to get into carbon dating, but uh, that is very dubious at best. Even more of the radiometric dating. It's, uh, <laughs> there, was a, uh, there was a part of a fossilized cowboy boot that was sent in. Typically when they send a sample in, they, they, they explain what strata they find it in and, and what dates they're expecting. Well, they didn't send any of that in, just the, the sample. And it was carbon data, it was uh, uh, radiometric dated to like a million and a half years old. And it was a cowboy boot. Yeah, I, I don't really trust those numbers a whole lot. So this Iceman, carbon dated around 5300 B.C. Iceman came from a village not far away to the south where food was plentiful and their flocks provided them with a good living. Some of Iceman's tools were identical to those excavated at this village site. Scientists were apparently hoping for a savage Neanderthal-like man, but here's what they got instead. They were surprised that Iceman was fit, showed no sign of disease, and had well-formed facial features. These are quotes from the, the uh, article. His hair had been cut to a length of three and a half inches. Way too long. But it's a good start. Many centuries before, anthropologists thought haircuts had begun. His tattoos, showing tribal or passage rites, were 1,300 years earlier than scientists had thought this practice had begun. His clothing and tools were of the best material, opposite to the idea of cavemen and crude skins. Scientists marveled at the ingenuity of his clothing. The robe was cleverly whip-stitched in a mosaic-like pattern. He wore ingeniously insulated shoes. The pattern of his braided grass cape was still in common use in the early 20th century by Tyrolean shepherds. His copper axe was of exquisite workmanship, and his fur quiver showed an unexpected degree of sophistication. If the axe had been found by itself, it would have been dated a thousand or more years later. Interesting. Scientists were stunned to see that his feathered arrow reflected a grasp of ballistic principles for a more accurate shot. He carried simple but effective tools with him. He wore a well-designed rucksack with a wooden frame on his back and had a leather pouch at his waist. He carried healthy snack food along with what is believed to be the world's oldest first aid kit. It contained amazing evidence that he knew about the antibiotic properties of plants. Interesting. At the same period of time that this ice band lived, things were going around in other parts of the world. Villages also thrived in the United States, south of the ice pack. The people practiced agriculture, hunted, and fished. Now, I know this sounds like a, a weird history lesson in church, but I'm making a point here. In France, ancients erected miles of gigantic stones in rows for astronomical purposes. Spectacular objects were fashioned of gold, lead, copper, and iron in Bulgaria. Skilled people along the coast of Chile perfected mummification many centuries before the earliest mummies in Egypt. An advanced state of Nubia was thriving in North Africa, producing exquisite stonework. In southern Israel, an unknown people created artistic metalwork, carried on advanced agriculture, and were known to practice successful surgery. We also see evidence of highly advanced surgical techniques in ancient Egypt. Fascinating. I don't think I have this in there, but in ancient Egypt and in other cultures, we find batteries. Isn't that interesting? Batteries. They had electricity. How about that? 
it boggles the imagination, doesn't it? We've been told for our whole lives that these are stupid, simple people. They were not stupid or simple. In ancient times, the city dweller, the hunter-gatherer, the explorer, the trader, and the outcast all lived in the same time period just as they do today. Explorers and traders. Technology is very similar, if not exactly the same, all around the ancient world. Ziggurats and pyramids found in Egypt, Peru, Mayan civilization, and many others around the world. There is no evidence of experimentation. In other words, there's no prototypes that we find. There's no trying, fixing tweaking, and eventually we come up with a good product. They come on the scene fully formed and perfect. Like I said earlier, the earliest ones are the best ones. As time goes on, they get worse and worse. The quality of the ziggurats and pyramids get worse and worse. There's no evidence of experimentation or or trial and error. The very first ones we find are perfect. The Minoans. Archaeological evidence of ancient electric batteries and advanced analog computing devices. There was an analog computing device found uh, almost over a century ago now off one of the Greek coasts. It's a computing device, an analog computing device, almost two millennia. I'm sorry, just a little over two millennia ago. And it was able to, they finally discovered, they were finally able to use x-rays and sonar or whatever and figure out what this thing did it tracked the sky it could track the the movement of the stars it could track the movement of the sun and moon it could tell you when eclipses were coming it could tell you all of that over two millennia ago a computing device stonehenge was aligned so perfectly so precisely that it wasn't until 1962 using a then modern computer from MIT, that we were able to determine just how precise their alignment is. And it was still perfectly aligned over 2,000 years later. Amazing. After the dispersion at Babel, different groups left in different directions, as we know. After a number of years, these groups became isolated, interbred, and become what we know erroneously today as the races. That's not true either. There's one race. Because of trade and exploration, however, these groups were not entirely isolated. There's ample evidence that contact was made between them. I gotta get going. Bronze was important to the Babylonian Empire. They had copper in abundance, but little, if any, tin. Evidence suggests they obtained their tin from such areas as the British Isles the Great Lakes region of North America, and the High Andes Mountains of South America. There are ancient maps, such as the Piriria's map, that show amazing detail of the post-flood, pre-Ice Age world. The entire coast of Antarctica is mapped without the ice. And it, it includes the location of the geographic South Pole. This mapping of the post-flood world would correspond with Genesis 10.25, which says, Unto Eber were born two sons, the name of the one was Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided. 
and in his brother his brother's name was Joctan. Now that that verse uh, is a very interesting verse, and there are a lot of theories that surround that. One of the the most prevalent is that what they're talking about is that the earth was surveyed, it was mapped during his time period. <clears throat> there are others, but that's the most prevalent. Even as late as the early Roman period, archaeologists have uncovered Roman armor and coins in North America. I thought they were going to fall off the face of the earth. How could Roman armor get to ancient America? Fascinating. One last thing that permeated the ancient world was the concept of the one true God. The Taoist Lao Tzu wrote in the 6th century B.C., and I quote, Before time and throughout time there has been a self-existent being, eternal, infinite, complete, omnipresent. Outside this being, before the beginning, there was nothing. Now this individual had no copy of Genesis to borrow from. An ancient text found in Heliopolis in Egypt declares this, and I quote, I am the creator of all things that exist that came forth from my mouth. Heaven and earth did not exist, nor had been created the herbs of the ground, nor the creeping things. I raised them out of the primeval abyss from a state of non-being. Unquote. Again, no copy of Genesis to look at. There's a work called the Theogony of Hesiod, which we looked at earlier, from 8th, 8th century B.C., he writes this on the creation account. First of all, the void came into being. Next, earth. Out of the void came darkness, and out of the night came light and day. Now, with this individual, he probably did have a copy of Genesis to look at. Scholars believe that he didn't, though, because how he portrays this creator is a very debased portrayal, uh, a very carnal portrayal of this creator. <clears throat> Nevertheless, he did get a few things right. Xenophanes, writing some two centuries later than Hesiod, held an altogether loftier view of the Creator, and I quote him, Homer and Hesiod attributed to the gods all the things which among men are shameful and blameworthy, theft and adultery and mutual deception, but there is one God, greatest among God and men, similar to mortals neither in shape nor in thought. He sees as a whole. He thinks as a whole. He hears as a whole. Always he remains in the same state, changing not at all. But far from toil, he governs everything with his mind. Now, Xenophanes knew the names of all the Greek gods, but he does not attempt to name this one. Amazing. The Descent of the Kings. This is one of the things I find the most fascinating about all of this. On July 6, 1600, one Baron Waldstein visited London's Lambeth Palace. His journal tells us that in one of the rooms there he saw, and I quote, a splendid genealogy of all the kings of England, and another genealogy, a historical one, which covers the whole of time and is traced down from the beginning of the world, unquote. Later, arriving at Richmond Palace on July 28th, he saw in a library there, quote, beautifully set out on parchment a genealogy of the kings of England which go back to Adam, unquote. 
These records detail the descent of six of the Anglo-Saxon royal houses of England, Wessex, Lindsay, Kent, Mercia, Northumbria, and East Anglia. Anglia, sorry. Now these records, of course, came up to 1600, but the previous records went all the way back. They were ancient. All of the evidence suggests that these are original copies. Right there in London. For anybody to look at. These copies were written, I'm sorry, these manuscripts were written before the evangelization of England. They had never heard of Noah from a, a Christian missionary. They had never heard the Genesis account from a missionary. There were no Christian missionaries. A lot of this was written before Jesus suffered on a cross and died. And yet, they traced their lineage back to Noah. That is something that I find absolutely fascinating. Where did they hear about Noah? Not from a missionary. They just traced it back. It was just the truth. That's why it's there. Now I should say a quick word about these lineages, these genealogies. They were extremely important to the kings. You needed to be able to prove your royal heritage. If you couldn't prove it, you wouldn't sit on the throne. Doctoring these documents, that was a very serious crime. It would not have been tolerated. And even if they did doctor them, where would you come up with Noah? Where would you come up with Japheth? He's in there too. Interesting. There are similar manuscripts showing the descent of Danish and Norwegian kings, the descent of the Irish Celtic kings, the descent from Japheth of the Miauzo people of China. So in different parts of the world, we have the same thing. People being descendant from Noah, from Japheth. All of this evidence, you're not going to see anywhere. You can get it. It's out there to be discovered. But you're not going to see it on the 6 o'clock news. You're not going to see it from the, the secular anthropologist, paleontologist. You're just not going to. Why? Why will you not see it? Why is it so difficult to get this kind of information? Because it leads to error. And that's what we open with. Error. <clears throat> it all goes into trying to disprove Scripture. To prove that God doesn't exist. To prove that what you and I believe is just fantasy. And if we're not careful, if you stick your nose too much into that stuff, you're going to start buying into that. 
It's easy enough to do. Keep your nose in Scripture. Keep your nose in truth. Now, if I said some of this to to the average person on the street, they would probably feel sorry for me. Poor deluded soul. Poor simple guy. Mom dropped him when he was a kid. (coughs) He can't help himself. He can wipe the drool off. I have no doubt that that's how they would think. And I know why they think that way. Because their worldview doesn't allow for any of this. I get that. But something has got to be true. Something has got to be false. Everything cannot be true. It just can't. And in today's day and age, we have got to settle in our hearts and minds what is truth. We've got to know it. We've got to buy it and sell it not. We've got to give ourselves to it completely. We've got to know it inside and out. We've got to be persuaded of it. We've got to be apt to teach it. We've got to live by it. No matter what. Error leads people away from Jesus Christ. Error causes confusion. I won't abide it. I won't abide it in my life. I won't abide it in this church as long as I'm here. Don't you abide it. It's the enemy. And I don't care how that sounds. Error is the enemy. It comes from the enemy. Truth comes from Jesus Christ. That's where we find truth. Everything that we covered... Thank you for staying awake. Brother Shepherd, God bless you, sir. <laughs> He's very tired tonight. <clears throat> but all of that to say this. The truth is out there. What we hear from scientists, what we hear from doctors, may or may not be true. This whole fact-checking thing is popular today. Who's doing the fact-checking? Who's checking them? And who's going to check them? And on and on and on. At some point, we just have to accept something. I don't have time in the hundred or so years, Lord willing, that I'm going to be here, to go through every single argument in all of history that everyone can come up with and trace it all the way back and see if it's true or not. I just don't have that kind of time. Nobody does. But we don't have to. Truth has been revealed to us through Scripture. The Holy Word of God is altogether true. If you don't truly believe that, try it. Test it. 
examine it. I have, I want to be persuaded of this. You better believe I've looked at this. I've looked at all the arguments. I've looked at all the contradictions and and errors and all of that. Here's another problem I have. Someone gets up here and says, well, this probably should have been translated this way instead. This, this, a better translation for this would have been, that's just, that's just not a good translation. You know what, dude? Have a seat. The Word of God is good. It's good. Now, I understand transliteration. There are nuances that are lost when you come from one language to another. I get that. It just can't be helped. Greek has 27 million words for love. We only have one. I love hamburgers. I love my wife. I love Jesus. Those are three different statements. Same word. I understand that. But everything we need is right here in the good old King James English. It's right there. We got what we need. It's not translated improperly. It was translated properly in 1611. Okay? The English language has changed in 400 years. It's changed in 10. I don't understand my kids anymore. No cap, low key. Totes legit. Whatever. (laughs) Exactly. What did I say? I have no idea. I know those words come out of their mouth. I don't know what they mean. The Bible is translated good. The Lord has divinely and miraculously watched over the Word of God from the very beginning to this present moment. What He has delivered to His church, what He has delivered to you and me, is the very Word of God. And it has power and authority in our lives. Don't believe for one second any of that junk, that there's errors in it, it was translated improperly. If you believe that, do the research. Do the research. Truth is going to stand up to, you, to a little scrutiny. Okay? I'm not afraid of you doing research. I'm not afraid of you looking into this critically. Do it. I promise you, you'll find what I've found. It's good. But don't take my word for it. Do it yourself. Be satisfied. Get your questions answered. Get this settled in your hearts. And let's move forward. Let's move forward in truth. Let's move forward in the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, I am so thankful that you have made us repositories of your truth, that you have entrusted us with the very word of the living God. Help us, Lord, to be found worthy of that trust. Help us to apply it. Help us to know it, to study it out, to be practiced in its use. Help us to be persuaded of it, thou most high God, to buy it and to sell it not to love every word that comes out of your mouth, that it would be our meditation all the day. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. I am so thankful for your word. 
I'm so thankful for the power and the authority of the Word of God. I pray, Lord, that every day we would get into it, we would delve into it, study it out, dig out these truths, these precious truths that you have delivered to us. Bless us as we go our separate ways. Bring us back to the house of God at the day appointed, and these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.